little more, uh, <clears throat> you know, heartfelt than our normal beat drop Saturday night party. Um, but uh, yeah, we'll get into even why we chose that as the bump video in a little bit. Did want to say one thing, by the way, good morning, hi, uh, my name is Scott, I'm the lead pastor here. Um, super psyched to get back into this series with you all. Before I do that though, this Wednesday is Ash Wednesday, um, traditionally uh, observed by the church all over the world, which is the beginning of Lent, the 40 days leading up to Easter Sunday. And Lent provides one of those rhythms in the year like Advent for us, um, where we can really, where we are called to really focus on certain themes of the life of faith. And so Lent is a time, probably you have uh, friends who don't do much um, in, in the area of religious practice and yet maybe observe Lent because it's their opportunity to give up chocolate or whatever. Um, and that goes with the theme of Lent, which is this idea of um, entering into the reality of suffering, the reality of um, of the fact that the life of faith is a life of repentance because Jesus himself took up a cross um, and died for us and calls us to do the same as his disciples. And so Lent is a time to really embrace that. Toward that end, um, I'm waving this around wildly because uh, we, we got about 50 Lent devotionals um, that are yours to take. They're out on, at the kiosk, if you will. Um, um, Oh, I can't ruin it for all of you. Do people still do Wordle? All right, let the reader understand. Um, uh, so there's there's uh, 50 of these out at the kiosk, um, and uh, and we are asking you to take one per family, um, uh, so that we don't so that everybody gets a chance at one of these. But just really helpful. This was published by Christian Today. They put one of these out every year. Um, I found the one last year really helpful personally. And so, uh, so just felt like it, it's, it's one way for us to engage this coming season. There's about um, a little section to read each week. It's not a daily thing. It's just once a week um, to give you a sense of the different rhythms of Lent. So grab one of those on your way out. Jen will have them out at the kiosk. That's K-I-O-S-K. Five letters. Um, so uh, <laughs> you can all send your friends now. I got it in one. Um, okay, uh, back to the series. Uh, you know, it's interesting. We did, we did the first chapter of John as our Advent series, right, during the December, and now we're jumping back into it. And I felt like jumping back into this is a little bit like jumping back into a show you haven't watched for a while. You know how when you're watching a show and it becomes like, like you begin to enter that world and you begin to think kind of like the director thinks and you know the motivations of the characters, and then you jump back into it and you kind of have to like reorient yourself, right? It's why it's always so weird to go back to maybe like a sitcom that you used to love and you watch and you're like, this isn't as funny as I remember it being. It's like, yeah, because you're not back in that world, right? The Gospel of John is less like a sitcom and more like, like early 2000s prestige television. Remember this era where all of these shows where TV became, yeah, people are shaking their heads because they're like, you're showing your age. Um, I was eight. Um, I was not watching The Sopranos. Um, good for you. Um, but right, like all of these shows that became like movies where things were working on several different levels. Like I think of Lost, right? Lost had these different levels to it. That's the Gospel of John. We've got to reorient ourselves to there's always more than meets the eye in the way, I'm going to run into this thing, in the way that the Gospel of John is being told. There's these two levels that we talked about through Advent where John, who is, as far as we can tell from this gospel, from the other gospels, is really Jesus's best friend in Jesus's earthly life. This is his closest confidant. 
John is telling us what happened, but he's also telling us what happened in a way that communicates deep truth about who Jesus is, deep truth about who we are, deep truth about how the world is. And so he's using real events in the life of Jesus to also make these really profound points about who Jesus was, about what the faith, the life of faith looks like in these kinds of things. So today, um, and by the way, in order to, to we're only going to get through chapter 12 in John in, in this sort of foray into it. We'll probably go back to John maybe like next winter this time. But in order to even do that, we've got to just take big chunks. And so I would love to go a snail's pace through John. Um, it feels like we, we've got to do a little bit more. So today we have these two big chunks, uh, which hopefully you are listening closely. And by the way, this would be like a really good series for you to have Bibles open in front of you, whether that's on your phone or a physical Bible. You've got Bibles underneath the chairs in front of you, um, especially because we're in big chunks. It's going to be helpful if you have something, you know, you actually have the text in front of you. It's one of the reasons we're giving away the scripture journals uh, during this, the John scripture journals. That's a really good way to be writing stuff down. You might want to get your hands on one of those. Anyway, good, you're taking out your Bibles. So if you look at, at Gospel of John, Chapter 2, Gospel of John, right at the beginning of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. You see, there's, there's two main stories here. And it was helpful that, that Joe read the titles of them. One is this miracle of Jesus turning water to wine, which probably, if you're not even familiar with Christianity, you're, you're new to all this, you've probably maybe heard of that, that Jesus turned water to wine. That's, that's one story here. And then you have this very dramatic story where Jesus shows up at the temple in Jerusalem and just seemingly kind of wreck shop. He goes off, right? And even in putting these two stories together, John is communicating things to us. It's a very interesting pairing of stories. Think about it. One is done very much in private, and before the eyes, one, one, one act, right, is done very privately. Um, there's barely anyone who fully realizes what's going on here. The other one could not be a more public action, right? Like this would be on the evening news in Jerusalem, what Jesus has done. This, this causes a stir throughout the city. One, the miracle of the water turned to wine, is this um, profound moment of uh, Jesus entering into the joy. And right, he's at a party, y'all. He's at a reception. And just think about this. He's at a reception. The wine runs out and Jesus is like, okay, yeah, I'll do my first miracle, right? Like, this is party time. This is amazing exuberance. This is, this is grace. This is helping probably a relative of his avoid the shame of what could happen if you run out of wine at your own reception, right? Like, one is, one is just full of grace and joy and all these beautiful, you know, the warm puppy images that we have of Jesus. The other one is Jesus with rage in his eyes, the other one is Jesus standing for truth in a place that it was really hard to do and taking a massive risk in calling out the temple system for what it had become. Right here at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, we get a sense that just when you think you can wrap your arms around who Jesus is, he surprises you. Just when you think he's tame enough to sort of get next to just when you think he's tame enough to be safe, all of a sudden, he awakens from that and you realize, as uh, I can't not think of the Chronicles of Narnia, where Aslan the Jesus figure, right? He's, he's, what is he? He's good, but he's not 
safe, exactly, right? Like, like you get this sense of just when you get close enough, there's challenge there, right? And, and that's intentional. Again, John is working at these two levels. Why put these two stories back to back? He's telling us what really happened, but he's also telling us something more than merely what happened. Okay, we're just going to... I'm just going to keep showing you how there's always more going on than meets the eye. Okay, he starts this story on the third day. Okay, on the third day. It's the very first sentence in this. Okay, Bible scholars, what does that make you think of? Yeah, the resurrection, right? The resurrection, the resurrection. On the third day. What's interesting here is that if you look through, and I won't, I won't go through all these details, but if you look through the first chapter of John, He's actually working us through a week um, that seems to start on, on the first day of, of the Jewish week on a Sunday. And then he tells us the next day, the next day, the next day, and then three days later. So if you time this out, this happens at, at the end of the week. This happens on the Sabbath day. This happens on the seventh day of the week. Which what do we know about the seventh day of the week, Bible scholars? Yeah, God rested, right? It's the Sabbath. It's, it's this place of holiness. It's this thing that was set apart from God from the beginning. By the way, if you're not catching this, if you're like, who are these Bible scholars actually answering this man? Um, you're like, I would never answer, right? Like, you're not alone. That's, that's why the Gospel of John needs to be read and reread. This is another thing, right? There's certain kinds of movies that a director makes that expects you to watch it again to catch what you didn't see. Or now what they do on some of these uh, fancy shows is that they give you those little 10 minutes at the end, right? You watch the credits and then all of a sudden there's people talking about it, and you go, oh, that's what that meant, right? And, and they kind of do the work for you, which I, I don't know, I'm kind of ambivalent about, but John won't do that for you. Sometimes he'll hand you, hey, this is what I was actually saying. Sometimes he says, you gotta come back to this. I think you missed it the first time, but you'll come back to it. And so that's okay if you're not catching some of this, but um, surely you wouldn't necessarily catch, oh, this happens on the seventh, the, the last day of the week. What's fascinating about this is that the way that the Gospel of John is put together is you have this week at the very beginning of the Gospel that he walks you day by day through, and then you have a week at the very end of the Gospel that he walks you through, which ends with Jesus on a Friday, crucified, on the Sabbath, resting, right, in, in death, and then when, when the resurrection shows up in John's gospel, way at the end of it, I'll show you this because I feel like you don't believe me, is John chapter 20. I want to hear pages shuffling. Go to John chapter 20. Good, louder. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> What's it say? What's the first sentence of John chapter 20? Now on the first day of the week. Okay? So this, this happens, this amazing event of Jesus' resurrection happens on a Sunday, which, by the way, is why we gather on Sundays as Christians. What is John saying? He's saying that everything in Jesus' life is leading us to a new kind of week. It's leading us out of the old week, out of the seven days that we've gotten used to, and into something new. Right? When you think of seven days, if you know the Bible, where all of your minds went to is Genesis 1, the seven days that God created the world. You see, one of the things, one of the big themes in the Gospel of John, you can write this in the margin uh, right there in your Bible. One of the big themes that John is going to take us back again and again to is that Jesus is the bringer of a new creation. 
He's the bringer of a new creation. He's doing something brand new in the world, as new as what God did when he made everything out of nothing. Okay? So this story happens on the third day, same day that the resurrection had, but also on the last day of sort of this last week as humanity has known it up until this point. On the third day, there was a wedding. By the way, we're going to go faster. I know that was a long time, the first three words, but that's John. On the third day, there was a wedding at Canaan Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. They don't say her name, which is really interesting, which um, could be because we learned the... Oh, I can't get distracted. Okay. Um, Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Okay, so he's at a wedding. He's at the reception. He's uh, in his home sort of region. So this is probably, you know, a family member of his. This isn't exactly where he's from. This is like, if you're from this area, this is up North Jersey kind of a deal. So, but probably someone he knows. And um, for one thing, Jesus goes to receptions. Like, Jesus goes to parties. This is one thing that he's known for, okay? He's not scared to be around where some things might be happening, where some music might be played that shouldn't be played, that shouldn't be happening, right? This is why, by the end of the ministry, of his ministry, one of the things that's most commonly said about Jesus is, yo, you're kind of a partier, bro. Like, they call him a drunkard, right? Which is probably, certainly, uh, we can assume, is more about reputation and people saying, yeah, but if you go to those kind of places, you have to be that kind of person. She's like, whoa, 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 you're dealing with something totally different here. But he goes to these places. He's a partier. He's among people. He ain't scared, right, of this. This is where he wants to be. It's also unmistakable that the very first place that we observe Jesus in some depth in John's gospel is at a wedding. You know why? Because weddings are massively significant in the story of God, right? Like, um, Genesis 1, right, we've already said that that should be in our minds in how John is telling us. But Genesis 1 then goes into Genesis 2. And Genesis 2 is about the story of how God creates humanity. And you know how Genesis 2 ends? It ends with a wedding ceremony. It ends with God creating Eve, bringing her to Adam, and Adam saying, yo, let's go, right? Like, I'm paraphrasing, but he says, now this is now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. He says, this is the other that I've been longing for. He says, basically what he says, I'm, I'm doing a couple weddings in the next couple months, so I've been talking to these couples, and, and the marriage vow biblically is, I intend to love you as if you were my own body for the rest of our lives. That's the last thing we see in creation is that vow being made between two people. Massively significant. When you go forward to the New Testament, now we learn that marriage all along was meant to point to something even greater than itself. It was meant to point to the one who loved us as if he were our own bodies with his very life. You see, the Apostle Paul says marriage all along was a mystery, and not a mystery in terms of a whodunit, a mystery in terms of you kind of got what it was about, but now with Jesus coming, now the full significance of it bursts forth into our understanding. And he says marriage is, is ultimate in that. It's a pointer to the way that each of us is loved by Jesus. At great expense to himself, at great sacrifice, he covenants himself to us. He relates to us in a way that we don't deserve. And this is what marriage was always meant to be. It doesn't stop there, though. It actually goes forward all the way into Revelation. Pam, put that Revelation passage up. 
where we are told that one image of how the whole story of God and humanity ends is this. Let us rejoice. This is the end, like the end end that the Bible is giving us a preview of. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride, that's us, has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper, to the reception of the wedding of God to his people. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. A wedding at the beginning. A wedding of Jesus come to to unite himself to his bride. A wedding that yet awaits us. Jesus now, his very first miracle, he's at a wedding. What we're being told here is, right, what really happened, Jesus went to weddings, he hung out with people, we have plenty of evidence of this, but John's also telling us something deeper. He's saying, if you have eyes to see, that's constantly what John is is sort of daring us to do. Do you see it? Do Do you just see a man at a wedding? Or do you see the focal point of the great marriage of God to humanity finally finding its fulfillment in this one man. Do you see it? Do you see that God, that the word made flesh, is at a wedding? Does that get you excited? Does that mean maybe it's finally happening? Maybe God really is coming to his people to unite us to himself, to give of himself sacrificially so that we can become what he always wanted us to be, which was his bride? In case we don't see it, he tells us a story about what happens there. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they don't have any wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Mary um, is aware that the, this is interesting, right? Does that kind of, do you kind of go like, what an interesting interaction, right? It's like very interesting, right? Mary, okay, so you got to realize, if there's anyone who's clued into who Jesus is at this point, it's his mom, right? Like, imagine raising Jesus. I won't go there too much, but like, you're probably like, they ran out of wine, I'll be right back. Like, Jesus, right? Like, and yet, does his interaction with her, eh, you a little bit, woman, right? We can't hear woman as bitingly as we would hear it, right? Like, I didn't call my mom woman, right? Like, that wouldn't have gone well, right? Like, um, don't try this on your wife. Don't try, you know, like, woman. Um, that's to be avoided, right? It's a little gentler than that in, in the original language. This is, this is more like ma'am. This is more like, um, but it's, it ain't that sweet. It's not mom. It's not mama. It seems like, again, this probably was, you know, exactly what happened because how do you remember this unless it was a little like, yo, remember that? That's when Jesus called her a woman. Remember that? Yeah. This seems like, and scholars will say, we can't back away from this and make it gentler. This seems like the moment where Jesus is transitioning into his public ministry, where stuff is about to get very real for him. And at some point, Mary goes from being merely his mother to someone who actually needs the grace and salvation that's solely available in her son. And so this is almost certainly this moment of transition where Jesus is saying, mom, you're asking me to do things that would launch me into a whole different way of being toward toward the world, toward the public, and mom, toward you. And yet you gotta love Mary, 
Because she's like, he's like, woman, what does this have to do to me? And she's like, cool. And she goes over and she's like, do whatever he tells you to do. I think there's comedy in that. It's like she kind of is like, yeah, sorry, like this is, I mean, this is Mary, right? Like this is the beauty of a genuine human relationship. Like, I don't know if my mom asked me to do something and I was like, woman, she'd be like, oh, you know, like I'm going to go have you do this, right? I don't know. That's, that's, how, that's how it reads on the page. And so she goes, and, and for reasons that aren't, we're not fully told, Jesus says, okay, okay, I'll do this. Do whatever he tells you, verse six. Now there were six stone jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. These are kegs, right? Literally, um, that's the image that you can get of them. They're Jewish purification, they're religious, but they're about to be kegs. Little spoiler alert. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, now draw out some and take it to the master of the feast. Who's the master of the feast? The master of the feast is like the head caterer. I just learned this this week. I always thought that it was maybe like the whatever, the bride's father or whatever. The master of the feast was like the head host, the MC, right? Like think of... Think of the DJ um, at your last reception, like, ladies and gentlemen, now welcome with me, the stars of the show, right? Like, so they bring it to that guy. Um, Master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from. Though the servants who had drawn the water knew, which is wild, the master of the feast called the bridegroom, said to him, everyone serves a good wine first. When people have drunk freely, you get what he's saying? Um, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. Uh, kind of a wild thing. Jesus is like, all right, fill them. All right, now take them out. And when the guy tastes it, it's the best wine that they've had yet at the reception. This is wild. This is Jesus. Okay, what we're told here is, this is what I want you to, it's okay to write in your Bibles. I want you to write in your Bibles. What I want you to circle here is, in verse 11, it says, this, the first of his signs. Go ahead and circle signs. Jesus did at Canaan Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. This, the first of his signs. Most scholars trace um, seven signs that John specifically points out throughout his gospel. Seven signs. There's that number again, seven. Right? Big, big number. Biblically, people do weird stuff with numbers in the Bible. What I can tell you with confidence is seven is always a massively important number. Seven days of the week that we've already seen, right? We saw those seven drawn out. Now we have the first of seven signs. This is a miracle, right? That's, that's the word that we would probably most assign to this. And yet, when Jesus does these miracles, these, these supernatural things, John always, almost always assigns them this label of sign. This is a sign. What does a sign mean? This is one definition. This is uh, D.A. Carson, one of the, one of the best commentators uh, on the Gospel of John. He says this about a sign. This is smaller than I thought it would be. I'll read it for you. Signs are significant displays of power that point beyond themselves to deeper realities that could be perceived with the eyes of faith. This is in the Gospel of John specifically. This is not just in general. This is how John uses it. Signs are significant displays of power that point beyond themselves to deeper realities that could be perceived with the eyes of faith. Again, John is daring you. Do you see it? Do you see it? Pretty crazy that someone could turn water into wine. 
Do you agree? Yes, that's crazy, right? There's no grapes involved here, right? There's no, right? What, is, what does wine require? Grapes and what else, mostly? Time, good, look at you, wine experts. Um, no judgment, right? It needs time, right? Like the best vintage is, you know, whatever, 40 years ago. It was a good time in Napa Valley in 2013. Boom, Jesus creates it and it's delicious. It's aged. It's, you know, a nice Pinot or whatever. This is crazy. This is a crazy miracle just on the face of it. This is remarkable. Great, great uh, Bible teacher named Daryl Johnson says, in some ways, you could argue that this is the greatest miracle that Jesus himself does. You know why? It's the only miracle where the materials necessary, where the ingredients necessary for the miracle are not there. Like Jesus will raise Lazarus from the dead, spoiler alert, later on in this gospel, but the materials to raise that man from the dead are all there, right? Jesus takes loaves and fish and multiplies them and feeds 5,000 people, but the loaves and the fish were at least there. This one, the necessary ingredients, they're not there. Do you see it? On the third day, the day of resurrection, on the seventh day, the day of God's rest. After God has created everything out of nothing, after God has created galaxies where none of the ingredients were previously present, now there is one capable in the middle of nowhere at a wedding that probably won't be written about otherwise in history. There's one who's just created something out of nothing. Another big thing about the structure of John is we took our sweet, sweet time in the first 18 verses of John. It's called the prologue, where we're told these crazy things about who Jesus is. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And, and nothing was made that, that had been made without the Word. Right? It's saying that that word spoken by God was actually a person. That the agent through whom God created the, the universe was, was his very son. Now that son shows up and the very first sign he does, the very first significant display of power that points beyond itself to a deeper reality that could be perceived with the eyes of faith is creation out of nothing. Do you see it? Do you dare to believe that this really happened? You're not going to be asked to understand and believe less <laughs> as the gospel goes on. Because all of this is actually building toward another third day. Where seemingly nothing becomes something. And that nothing becomes something. The very death of Jesus. The suffering and crucifixion and rejection of Jesus, that nothingness become everything is what faith actually rests on. You see, that's part of the reason why we're told in verse 11, this the first of his signs Jesus did at Canaan and Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. We're going to be told that people believe in Jesus all along, and we're supposed to develop a little bit of pause when we hear that. Because so far... What they have is an extraordinary display of power. 
And probably if you saw an extraordinary display of power, you would believe in whatever you were being asked to believe in. And what we will see as the Gospel of John goes, goes on is while that might be sufficient to get you in the door with Jesus, it is not sufficient to give you persevering faith. Because where this display of power will ultimately head, it's toward the ultimate display of the giving up of power. And it's when Jesus begins to give up his power, begins to actually leverage that power to go to a sacrificial cross that all of a sudden we watch people who had previously believed in him begin to slowly back away. And so it says, yeah, this is amazing. Yeah, this is extraordinary. But let's just pause and figure out what's actually going on here. Into the next story. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. A little transition. Previously on Gospel of John, right? The Passover of the Jews was at hand. We, we constantly are reminded that Jesus shows up in Jerusalem at these high holy days. He's there uh, when a good, faithful Jewish person should be there. The Passover, this is the, the great story in the Old Testament of when God rescues his people from the Egyptian empire. He tells them, uh, put, a, put a sacrificial sign over your door, the, the, the lamb's blood over your door, and then the angel of death will do what? pass over your house. This is God's rescue of his people. This is something that they would commemorate every year. Jesus goes to celebrate this. The Passover of the Jews was at hand. Do you think we're told that on accident? Good. That's always the answer, Cindy. No, we're not told these kinds of details on accident, right? What's going on here? Jesus, who we've previously learned now, this is where you got to start putting peace together. This is where you become one of those dorks who sees all those, uh, those levels. I'm one of those. My wife always turns to me after a TV sh show, and she says, with sort of derision in her voice, so what did that actually mean, right? Um, and so maybe, maybe you're one or the other, probably, um, with a roommate or whatever, right? Um, is what do you remember when Jesus shows up, what John the Baptist proclaims as, as Jesus' title? Behold... The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Which is a clear reference, if nothing else, to the story of Passover. We've already learned it. We've already been told it, right? Was it, um, is it Columbo where you know the murder at the beginning? Does anybody watch Columbo, right? Don't you know the murder at the beginning and then it works backwards, right? That's kind of a lot of TV that references, ugh, pop culture. Um, but Columbo, right, you find out who the murderer was and then you've got to work back toward How did that end up being the person? That's what John is like. It's more like that. It's not a slow reveal. The Gospel of Mark's the opposite. It works up to revealing who Jesus is. Gospel of John tells you right at the beginning and then you've got to work backwards. So the first title that Jesus is given is, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 25 verses later, Jesus shows up at Passover. The Passover of the Jews was at hand. Jesus went up to Jerusalem. By the way, I love this. He goes down to Capernaum and up to Jerusalem. And people are like, but on a map, you go, you go up to, to Galilee and, and down to Jerusalem. These are, these are um, topographical things. Is you go down um, to to. Uh, to Galilee, and you go up a mountain to Jerusalem. I'm sure that bothered many of you. That was free. Okay, in the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, poured out the coins of the money changers, overturned their tables, 
He told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Bunch of things in the Old Testament that speak of when God shows up in the human story, that God will first deal with his own. And that that will get really close to the center of God's own people. So you have stuff like this in in the Old Testament. Pam, go to that one that has two passages on it. So here, I I knew that this one was going to be small. But here, um, this is Zechariah 14, 21. These are prophets. These are people foretelling what God will do when he shows up in the story. It says, And every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them. And there shall no longer be a traitor in the house, not not traitor like betrayer, but a traitor, someone doing commerce in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. Like the worship of God will be separated from from commerce, from, from the ability to commercialize religion. Malachi 3, 1 to 3. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he's like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap, whatever that is. And he will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi. Who are the sons of Levi? The priests, good. He will purify the priests and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. When God shows up, he's going to the temple. And he's going to the temple and he's going to make right what's gone wrong. He's going to take mere commercialization, mere religion, and he's going to turn it back to right worship of God. Again, do you see it? (laughs) Like That one is here. That's what's happening here is Jesus shows up. So what's actually going on here? What seems to be going on is on these high holy days, you would have to, um, as, as, as you know, a faithful Jewish person, you would have to make sacrifices on that day. And so it was untenable to bring those sacrifices with you on these long journeys. So when you showed up in Jerusalem, you would go and you would buy the, the particular type of sacrifice that was appropriate for your family and it was different socioeconomically. You would buy that and then you would bring it into the temple and you would sacrifice it. So actually the whole setup here isn't, isn't the worst thing ever. One, one commentator basically says, this really comes down to location, location, location. Is what clearly rankles Jesus is where this is happening that it's happening in the temple itself. And specifically, we're told in the other gospels that it's happening in the, uh, in the place where, where non-Jewish people, where the Gentiles would be allowed to worship. Because there, was like, there were like these tiers in the temple where like the, the priests could go into one spot, you know, faithful Jews could go into another spot, and then there was this big wall, and then the Gentiles could go and worship in this other spot. It seems like that's where they had set up this little Walmart of sacrifices. And that's what Jesus has an issue with. One, you're barring an entire group of people, by the way, those who aren't like you, from being able to properly worship in God's temple. Jesus is not okay with that. This is a reminder, Jesus came not for one people group. He's still not coming for one people group. He is coming for all the nations of the world and that the uniting of the nations and ethnicities and all these things is at the heart of what Jesus has come to do. He says, if you're just by your setup excluding them, if you can't see the fact that this is keeping Gentiles from having access to almighty God, yeah, we're tearing it down. 
first thing he's saying. Second thing he's saying is, um, I think that this, this gets to, to us a little bit, is he says, you have turned the worship of God into this casual, efficient, what is the most comfortable, efficient way to do this? Because we don't want to walk all the way over to there because we'd have to, if we set up over there, we'd have to rezone it with the city council and there'd be all these issues. And then you have to pull your oxen. Imagine pulling an oxen through, you know, New York City all the way to town. Like, let's just set it all up here. And Jesus is saying, when did efficiency, when did comfort, when did ease become the priority of my people with respect to how and when we worship and listen to God. That's what he's, that's what he's railing against. Is he saying, how dare you? How dare you turn the place where God is supposed to be solemnly worshipped, bowed down to, encountered in reality? How have you turned it into a place of commerce? Literally, how have you turned it into a Walmart, right, is what he's saying. This is a mall. This is a shopping mall. What are you doing? This is God's house. Notice that he calls it my father's house. It's my dad's house. Get out. What are we doing, right? And, and I think that sometimes we think it's just this, this rage moment, right? Like I think of if your kids watch Dude Perfect, I think like this is Jesus' rage monster moment, right? Um, this is not that. Like even this week, I was reading like, you can't drive a bunch of oxen and cattle out of anywhere without a whip, right? He's not whipping people, okay? He's not just, just sort of violently crushing people. He's like, get out, oxen. Like you don't, right? Imagine the noise. Imagine the, the clamor. Imagine the chaos of the scene. He's going, this is a church. What are you doing? This is a sacred place. One of the little details that I love here is he told those who sold the pigeons Take these things away. Do not make my father's house. Why are we told specifically what he tells the pigeons? The pigeons were a substitute for those who couldn't afford the more expensive oxen. I just can't help but see a little bit of Jesus's nearness to, to the poor to say, I whip those guys, head out. Like, like head out. I'm not gonna overturn your tables. Like take what you can and go. There's, there's, there's this empathetic moment in the midst of this. But that's, that's what's happening here. So the Jews said to him, verse 18, what sign do you show us for doing these things? What sign do you show us? This is not an illegitimate question, right? Like the powers that be come, they're like, you know, someone's overturning tables and driving out our whole system of how we do sacrifices. Like on what authority, bro? Like show us something, do a magic trick or something, right? Which again, with eyes to see, we go, oh, if only you knew. Like, or we feel like, Jesus, do the, do the water and wine thing. You just did that one. Like clearly that one works, right? Like that's your thing, Right? Jesus, though, constantly, he will not perform for performance's sake. He just won't. Nor, this gets into our, into our business a little bit more, nor will he perform to produce a temporary kind of faith and validation of his person. Why? For the same reason that I said before, because he knows that kind of faith won't last. That kind of faith is temporary. I know we all think that if I saw a miracle once and it was definitely verified in a miracle, that I would never disbelieve again. My response to that is read your Bible. It is never enough. Some of y'all seen miracles. Some of you know your own story is miraculous and yet prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love, right? Like 
We sing that because we mean it, even though we have all seen things that feel like once and for all knockdown evidence that God is real. Jesus won't do it. Instead, he does a very Jesus-y thing. Verse 19, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you'll raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body, which they didn't get. They weren't supposed to get. He says, you want a sign? I'll give you a sign, but it ain't going to be yet. They think, of course, he's talking the natural, which if you've heard our, you know, 57 sermons on the woman at the well, which you're about to get a couple more uh, in a couple weeks, right? Like, you should hear that interaction, right? Where Jesus is like, I have living water. She's like, give me the living water. Like, where's the good stuff? And he's talking just at a level that she's not quite grasping. That's what he's doing here in front of this huge audience of Jewish authority. He's saying, tear down this temple in three days. I'll, three days, three days, three days, three days. What's he, what's he talking? We don't even need to be told by John. He's talking about his very being. What is the temple? Uh, go to that next quote. This is a great, this is Leslie Newbegin, great New Testament scholar of the last century. He's a um, he worked uh, in India for years and, and years and years and, and built his theology off of sort of things that he saw there. Anyway, fascinating figure. Couldn't recommend him enough to you. Um, the temple is the place of sacrifice where God has provided the mercy seat at which sin is put away and men and women can come into the presence of God. Right? That's where the temple is, where, where God and humanity meet. But with the death of Jesus, the one true sacrifice is offered and there is no more need for the blood of sheep and oxen. The temple is the place of God's tabernacle where God where his glory dwells. But in Jesus, the word of God has come to tabernacle among us and we've seen his glory. The flesh and blood of Jesus, this man, is the temple where God dwells in the fullness of grace and truth. The lamb of God shows up in Jerusalem on Passover. The word made flesh come to tabernacle among us shows up in the temple. And he says, the reason this temple can be torn down is because this temple is being replaced by the actual thing that it always pointed to. I am the temple of God. God's presence dwells in this place and needs to be hidden in this place. I am the one who has the fullness of God in me and who can so transform you by what I am going to do that his presence can now dwell within you. He says that's a replacement from obsolete to better. And so Jesus is saying, the only sign that I can give you that will actually be of lasting faith in your life is the sign of my death and resurrection. Because the more that that goes deeply into the very core of who you are and your identity, that's where lasting faith comes from. The magic show, it don't last. But he says, the one sign that I will give you to authenticate everything else that I have done is an action that will be of ultimate cost to myself. Because here's the deal. We do not understand who Jesus is. We cannot understand who Jesus is apart from the cross. He is nothing. He might be, he might be a cool magic trick, right? Like he's an ancient David Blaine or whatever. But he's nothing if where this whole story is headed is not true. That's what the Gospel of John is going to want to say to us. Here's why that's hard. It would be so much easier to just follow someone who can zap us with all the good things that we need, right? We would love a miracle worker, full stop. Jesus says, that's not the sign that you need, though. 
That's not what you actually most deeply need is every single earthly provision met for you. What you actually need is something far deeper, which is reconnection with the one that you were created for who can actually give you hope even beyond the worst things of this life, even beyond death itself. And that is only available if I come and put my body in the place where yours belong under the wrath and judgment of God to take all of it upon myself so that you could finally come back home. Because that's what you actually need. That's the sign that you need. That's the display of power that points beyond itself if we have eyes of faith to see it. And so the whole Gospel of John will ask, this one that you are seeing really is who he said he was, but you can't follow him unless you follow him all the way to and through the cross itself. This is why we get this really interesting end to our passage. Verse 23. Well, let me go to 22. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed. Wait, I thought they already believed. In verse 11, it says, this, the first of his signs Jesus did at Canaan and Galilee, and manifested glory, and his disciples believed in him. Now it says, when therefore he was raised from the dead, three years later, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed. Which is it? This is all of us, y'all. This is, every, this is everything that it means to be a follower of Jesus. Is And by the way, I love the phrase that John uses. Most of the Gospels um, use this phrase, believe in, with this, with this little particle next to it, in, like, like same word in the ancient language as ours. But, but John uses a, a different little thing after believed. He uses the, this word that means into. They believed into him. The journey of faith is continuing to believe into who Jesus actually is. And so there is an initial faith that comes, and normally that comes with a certain amount of zeal. It comes with a certain amount of, look what God has done. It comes with a certain amount of, we have a miracle worker. He's amazing. He's all powerful. He really is God. And then as we walk with him, things happen that call some of that into question. And the question becomes, as you yourself are brought closer to the cross in your own story, will you slowly walk away from that belief? Or will you continue to believe into who Jesus actually is? Into the fact that he is not an alleviator of suffering, but one who draws especially close in suffering because he has suffered with and for us himself. It's a really hard message, but that's what the Gospel of John is constantly trying to get us to do. Because listen, listen what this ends with, verse 23. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about humanity for he himself knew what was in us. In other words, Jesus is saying, I'm glad my approval rating's up right now. I'm really glad y'all are paying attention. I suspect you're following me for the wrong reasons. I suspect... When the magic show stops, some of y'all will not go with me all the way to the cross. What's fascinating about Jesus is his ministry starts high in popularity and low in genuine belief and ends incredibly low in popularity. He's basically alone on the cross. And yet those who follow him all the way there 
have such a deep and profound belief on the other side of the cross and the resurrection that y'all, here we sit 2,000 years later. The journey of faith is always a journey to and through the cross. And some of us, some of you, right, right now are being brought to and through the cross. And you're wondering, can my belief survive this? And I would say what the Gospel of John is saying is, one, even if you don't emotionally feel it, Jesus has never been closer to you. Because when you're going to the cross, you're obeying his words that said, if anyone would follow me first, you got to take up your cross. Carry it with me. Die to yourself every single day. And sometimes we get in the place where we say, Jesus, I feel like I'm dying every day. I feel like it's really hard to be faithful to you. And then we act like he's the one who sold us a bill of goods. <laughs> and he's over there saying, yeah, we talked about this on the front end. We talked about it, right? You bear that cross. You go with him to that place. Because here's the reality. This is why I say he takes us to and through the cross. The story of Jesus don't end with the cross. You know that, right? right? All, of, all of what this was set up with happened on the third day. And on the third day, that which looked like nothing, that which looked like shame, that which looked like the running out of something, that which looked like exhaustion and done and the party's over, y'all, became in a moment the joy of the master of the feast saying, the good one's here. I've never seen this before. After it runs out, you bring out the good stuff? That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I bring you to the cross, but there's something beyond that cross. There's a fullerness of life. There, there, there's, a, there's a completion of what I called you for in the first. So soldier on, bear that cross. I know it's hard, but Jesus is there with you, but he's taking you through it to something else. He's taking you through it to resurrection life. And right now, there might just be water. There might just be water. All you feel like is, yeah, I'm hydrated, but that's about it. But I'm hungry and I'm famished and I'm unsatisfied. What will get you there? There's wine on the other side of it. There's celebration and richness and something new. Probably not what you expected, not what I expected. But this is who we're following, right? Do you see that? One thing that he requires, and, and I, can't, I, I can't minimize this point, and Jacob's well, right, we're about to head into Lent, and, and I feel this challenge in my own person. Guys, we can't make following Jesus about, yeah, but what's the most efficient way to do this? What's the most comfortable way? Ugh, some of the stuff they're asking us to do in D course is just like really inconvenient and just feels like a lot, and like no one's really gonna do that stuff, right? Like every day, right? Like, no, 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 no. When we turn it into efficiency and comfort, we do what the money changers did in the temple courts, right? We cheapen the God who we're approaching. Look, Jesus didn't do this because he's petty. Jesus did this because he knew that for God's people, it was dangerous to minimize the respect that was owed to God. He knew it was dangerous to their souls. He knows that they are in peril when their faith becomes about what's the easiest way? What's the bare minimum that I could do to stay in, right? Jesus is saying, oh, you're leaving so much on the table, right? You're leaving the, the glory and, and greatness of God. If you wonder why you feel like you're alone in some of this suffering, it's when have you actually approached God with an expectation that you might really truly encounter the creator of the universe, right? Like sometimes we leave that to other parts of of Christianity, 
right? It's like there's a revival going on in, in you know, down south somewhere. And some of us probably have an instinct of like, eh, that's probably a little weird, right? Because we just don't, sometimes we can, I don't know if it's a Northeast thing, I don't know if it's an evangelical thing, I don't know if it's a reform thing, or whatever it is, but guys, we've got to get back to some passion for the greatness and glory of God. We've got to get back to being sobered in his presence. We've got to get back to actually showing up here on Sunday and saying, maybe if I worship, maybe if I give God a little bit more this morning, maybe I'll encounter him in a way that actually I've been longing and crying out for him, right? Have your expectations of God fallen so low that you just show up to stuff like this. You show up to decourse and you're like, yeah, this is just, this is just a check mark. We fall into this stuff, guys. What if we became a church that was known for a passion for God? Ooh, you know, like we're going to be one of those, right? It can look like us. It can be our own thing. But guys, there got to be points where we really reckon with the reality of the one that we're drawing near to, where we take that seriously, you know? Let's not be so cool, right? That's really what it can come down to. Let's not be so cool that passion for God becomes an embarrassment. God forbid, right? Because that's what's going to sustain us. That's what's going to sustain. That's what the young people have on us. That's what youthful zeal right after conversion has on us, is that there is an awareness of, you, you know God's real, right? You know God's real, right? You get 25 years into following, you're like, yeah, I know. What? Jesus will overturn those tables in your life. And I suspect he might be doing that right now. In the church in general, and let's be ready for it, y'all. He wants to do that in each of our hearts. He wants to do that here. Let's let him. You down with that? Let's let him. Let's let him have his way with this church, right? God forbid that he would ever show up here and go, guys, this is a church. What are you doing? This is so casual and efficient and comfortable. No one's challenged here. No one's calling out and passionate to me. No one's actually praying and expecting anything from me, right? Let's not be that. Let's not be that cold, cool church. I have no interest in that. There was a time where that was kind of like, oh, that feels really safe. Let's not be that, right? Like if COVID did anything, it woke us up to like, we need God. <laughs> we really need God. And so let's act like we need God. Let's pray. Father God, um, we thank you, Lord, that you do awaken us to these truths. God, if there are tables that need to be turned over in our lives, um, as scary as it is, Lord, we welcome you to do that because we know, God, that you always have good for us. You are always out for our good. And so God, even as we approach this table this morning, I pray that, that a new awareness, a new sobriety would hit us as we come to this place and say, man, I am really offered the body and blood of the Son of God for the forgiveness of my sins and my shame. Not someone else's, not sin as a concept, but like the real stuff that I've done. Lord, start with us as needy sinners receiving grace and fan that into flame, into a passion for you, even in the midst of suffering, especially in the midst of the difficulty of this life and the season many of us find ourselves in. God, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.